When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to All of the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 421, and today we are talking about books being released on July 11th, 2023, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Vanessa, hello. Liberty, how are you? I'm all right. It's really hot. It's really hot everywhere. I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. I definitely turned off my AC. <laughs> You turned off your AC? Well, because I, we had to record, so I had to, like, you know, I did the thing where I, like, cooled oh, oh, it down. Oh, I get it now. I thought you meant just, like, in general, like, oh, yeah, I'm a little slow today. I have a- You know, I like to bake. No, I, <laughs> it's so loud that I turned it on for, like, that requisite one hour, and I was like, and time to record. Off. So, yeah. Let the melting begin. Yeah. I'm doing that thing where I, I'm trying to give up caffeine for, like, the millionth mm. time. Or not even just caffeine, but, like- Red Bull and soda. Ooh. I slipped back into Red Bull and soda. <laughs> and so I've been trying to give it up, and now I have a headache, and I'm a little slow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah. That headache. That's all right. It's fine. I have a really weird little, like, interlude here about, so I just relatively soonish, anyway, got back from ALA, which was great. It was my first time going, went with some Book Riot folks. Mm-hmm. So it's this, this giant conven- convention center in Chicago, McCormick. That's, you know, first time going there. And so I get there, like, an hour before my meetings, thinking, this is plenty of time for me to get a matcha latte. And I'm not even a caffeine person the way a lot of people are. Yeah. It was this one tiny Starbucks was the only thing, you know, in the joint. It was in the convention center. And the line was never less than about an hour long. Yeah. So everybody you talked to was just like, I haven't had caffeine in two days. I haven't had because, ca- you know, they're there for days. <laughs> and so many people's faces just look like they had seen some stuff like because they couldn't get their caffeine. It's like, how did nobody think about this? Like, why didn't anybody have a little coffee car? So, so yeah, I didn't have a matcha latte for three days and I was cranky and I don't even quote unquote need it like that. But I was I was very salty about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I know that's what happened. It's the same thing at the Javits Center when we that's had what I figured, yeah. the Expo every year. There was one Starbucks and the line would be, Bananas. you know, like an hour long. Like everybody would be standing there. And luckily I did not, I don't drink coffee, like coffee. coffee oh, okay. So I didn't have to stand, but I would stand with other people in line, like, like hang yep. out and keep them entertained. One time I was standing in line. This was many years ago because Book Expo hasn't been around for a while now. And I haven't been in a while. We were standing in line in the whole time, and we didn't realize uh, Kevin Pollack was standing in front of us, <laughs> the actor. Like, no, like at the end, he turned around, and I was like, "Hello," <laughs> you know, like, "Wow." <laughs> Do you know who you are? <laughs> he was probably standing there going, "Wow, these people really like books. Get me away from these nerds." Oh, well. But speaking of books and how much I like books, can I tell you this quick book serendipity story? Please do. It's very strange. So this is all connected, I promise. So, like, Barbara Streisand has a memoir coming out. And I was going through catalogs the other day, and I was like, oh, Barbara Streisand, Prince of Tides, 
I read The Prince of Tides when I was 10 years old. Should not no, have. Oh, yeah. But, like, <laughs> it gave me that feeling, like, I'm reading an adult book. You know, like, I mean, it just, there was, like, some feelings. Like, I would read, you know, John Updike and John Irving mm-hmm. and Stephen King, and, and they would give me these feelings, like, I'm reading adult mm. books, you know. <laughs> and so I was thinking, like, you know, I haven't read The Prince of Tides, you know, and, and I've been chasing that feeling my, my whole adult Aww. life, you know, <laughs> but you can never get back. But I was like, I should reread The Prince of Tides. And so, this is by Pat Conroy, if you haven't read it, you know, it was a movie with Nick Nolte and whatever. And so, that afternoon, I get this box in the mail. This big box that I was not expecting. And it's from Mariner Books. And it's like, have a box of classics on us. And there's an illustration on the front of ten classics. It's like, a room of one's own. There's some Hemingway. There's, you know, and, and... Prince of Tides. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, it's like the universe knew that it is. But it gets wilder because when I opened the box, it turns out that the books on the label are not necessarily what are in the box. Oh, okay. So I got five books and four of them were not the books listed on the label, but the one that was, was Prince of Tides. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I was like, I was telling everybody around me. I'm like, you have to hear this. This is so weird. Like, book serendipity. The universe is sending me a sign. Aww. Like, yeah. I love that so. for you. I just thought that was, I just thought that was amazing. It is. Because I love books. All right. We're going to tell you some more about books. But first, we are going to hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle. Walk, Ride, Paddle is a captivating memoir of Senator Tim Kaine's physical journey through the Virginia wilderness, but it is also a unique and ultimately optimistic perspective on these pivotal moments in history, offering inspiration, wisdom, and hope. With immediacy and honesty, Kane pulls back the curtain to reveal his inner thoughts during such monumental times. And Kane's storytelling gift and wise observations offer a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a seasoned politician and outdoor enthusiast. Walk, Ride, Paddle is available everywhere audiobooks are sold on April 9th. It is narrated and written by Tim Kaine, Virginia senator and former Democratic vice presidential candidate. It's a compelling account of one man's journey across hundreds of miles of Virginia wilderness and a moving testament to the optimistic spirit of America. So make sure to check out Walk, Ride, Paddle by Tim Kaine. And thanks again to Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. All right, so today is episode 421, which I am sad to report is (laughs) not a U.S. area code, apparently. 
I don't, I just feel like we have to have used every single number that there yeah. is now, every single three-digit number, but it turns out, no. It is, however, the country code for Slovakia, if you were wondering. Excellent. And we want to remind you about first edition. Uh, what do S.A. Cosby, Khaled Hosseini, and Sarah Bakewell have in common? They've been guests on Book Riot's newest podcast, First Edition, where BookRiot.com co-founder Jeff O'Neill explores the wide bookish world. You can subscribe to hear them and stay to hear Book Riot's editors pick the It Book of the Month. To subscribe, search First Edition in your podcast player of choice. I'm hopefully going to be doing something on that soon, I was telling you. Yes. Jeff has ideas, which I have agreed to <laughs> without finding out what they are, so. It's a great podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what it is. So... Now we're going to talk about books out today, except I'm going to start with one that didn't come out today because too, great. it's one of my favorite <laughs> books of the year. Woo. And it came out last week on July 4th in which there was no show. So I want to tell you about it now. It is The Librarianist by Patrick DeWitt. I love Patrick DeWitt. I love all his books. He does something very different with each one. Like, like Colson Whitehead. The Sisters Brothers is a Western. French Exit was this cutting examination of the elite. Under Major Domo Minor is this speculative historical fiction novel. Ablutions is like this navel-gazy contemporary fiction. I just, I love him. The Librarianist is a humorist, feel-good novel that also will make you cry. It's so good. It's like, I found it to be a little John Irving, a little Frederick Bachman, a little J. Ryan Stradle. It's just so great. And up front, I want to tell you, it is called The Librarianist, but it doesn't actually have that much to do with books. We don't, like, get to see him talk about books and spend a lot of his time in the library. It's mostly what's happening outside of the library. But that's okay, because it's still great. The Librarianist is about a man named Bob. And after 40 years as a librarian, Bob has decided that it's time to retire. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but, you know, 40 years. So... He goes home and kind of gets bored, really, really bored with his time. And then one day he's in the store and there's a woman in there who is seemingly confused and isn't speaking to anybody. And he's asking her if she's okay. And he follows her out of the store. And it turns out that she had wandered away from a nursing home. She was part of this retirement community and he follows her there. He helps get her back home. And while he's there, he winds up signing up to be a volunteer. And that's where he's going to spend his retirement. And he makes friends there, and he kind of, like, finds meaning in his retired life. It's really feel-good, but also there's, like, an interlude in the middle where we learn about Bob when he was young. Uh, I read this so... I think I read this in November, so please forgive me. I can't remember if his father passes away or if he leaves, but he's raised by a single mother, and... We learn about when he was a child and how he came to love books. And then when he grows up, he falls in love and he gets married and there's heartbreak. And then he decides he's going to spend his time alone for the rest of his life. It's just this great novel that the thing that I took away from it, and I know everyone takes different things away from, from novels, is that we put too much emphasis on romantic relationships. You know, like being in a relationship should not be the main focus of what you're supposed to do with your life. Like, you can find meaning in your life without being in a relationship. You can find meaning in your life in a relationship, you know, without making it your entire world. And the other thing I took away from it is that people are weird. I mean, I already knew this, obviously. But 
you know, when I set it down, I was thinking, people are weird and oh my God, we're going to die. And like, what am I doing with my life right now? Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, and then that feeling fades because, you know, nature does that to your brain and makes you forget. Otherwise we would just run around screaming all the time. But it's just this great story about love and loss and friendship and being the main character of your own story. And it's also funny and sad and I have to say, I've said this like a million times, like on, on social media, I won't say what it is, but there was this sentence near the end of the book that I read that made me burst into tears. Like I now ex- like really understand that expression, like bursting into tears. And I stopped for like 10 minutes because I was like, that's so true and so sad, uh. which I loved. <laughs> that was great. I loved that. But I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you to find out what it is, but also I might get a tattoo to my forehead, but yeah, I just, I loved this book so much. I want to give content warnings for infidelity, illness, and death of a loved one, mental illness, dementia, violence, homophobic language, and suicide. This is The Librarianist by Patrick DeWitt. I have been meaning to read Patrick DeWitt for years. <laughs> I sold so much of it uh, when I was a book. Like, I own, I think, most of his I works. Yeah, I need to finally remedy this. It's one of those gaps yeah. for me. Will do. All right, well, let me tell you about my first pick, which, in keeping with the theme, is also one that came out last... Oh, no, sorry, this is not the one that came out last week. This one came out this week. My second pick came out last week. Just, for you know, forget you heard any of this. But my first pick is one that I'm very excited about, and it is The Mistress of Batia House by Sujata Masi. So this is another of the Praveen Mystery series, and this is, like, total, like, Book Riot favorite. I have loved the series since the first book, which is The Widows of Malabar Hill. All of the books, which I think you probably should try to read in order like they do stand alone technically but there's some family dynamics specifically to do with Praveen and like her past that I think you'll be a little bit lost on and like could be spoilery if you don't read the first book at least Um, but they're all set in 1920s India when women aren't allowed to well I mean do a a lot of things Um, they certainly haven't been allowed to practice law and Praveen Mystery is Bombay's maybe even India's like only female lawyer and as the only woman lawyer she in the series has basically seen her be uniquely positioned to handle certain cases because she has access to certain spaces and corners of society that she wouldn't be able to access if she wasn't a woman. So it's one of those like things that like she's not supposed to be practicing law. She is. She's trying to break ground and she's able to do so because there are cases where being a woman is really beneficial to her. So this one opens in 1922 and Praveen is attending this really lavish fundraiser for a new women's hospital that is going to specialize in maternal health issues. Maternal health is sort of a big theme in this book. Big deal is being made about what each of the women in attendance is contributing. So like there's literally this sort of ceremony where it's like, and you, what did you contribute? And it's a little bit of a, you know, competition vibes. (laughs) Uh, Praveen specifically is there because she's been sent by her sister-in-law who wants her to take her contribution on her behalf because she's just given birth to a baby herself. And she wants to win those society points. So she sends Praveen in her stead. But at the fundraiser, there is a terrible accident. The grandson of this influential businessman catches fire, but a a servant, his young Aya, which is the name given to female domestic workers who were like specifically caregivers to children in the, I think, European households like in India. So this Aya's name is Sunanda, and she rushes to save the little boy, puts herself in harm's way to do so, and like, you know, helps him, but she sustains burns to her own body in the process. 
And Praveen is taken aback by the way she's treated at the fundraiser because no one seems to recognize the heroism of what she just did and is instead blaming her and, and putting her to the side for what happened. And Praveen's like, well, she like literally threw her body in harm's way and she's burned. Like, you know, she did a good thing. People don't seem to be agreeing with her, especially not the ones that, you know, this woman works for. And later, Praveen finds out that Sunanda has been arrested on some trumped up charges made up by a man who like doesn't seem to exist. And so she decides she's going to help Sunanda. She takes on her, her case. She takes her on as a client and invites her to live at her family's home. But the mystery home, her, you know, her house isn't exactly a real chill place right now either. <laughs> Praveen's father is forever worried specifically now about, you know, Praveen taking on all this responsibility as a lawyer, because again, it's not exactly still a safe space for her to do so. And then in this case, you know, the the risks of the law firm taking on all this personal responsibility for a client. And then her brother and sister-in-law, Praveen's brother and sister-in-law, are struggling because they just had this new baby. And as we all know, you know, new, new babies, period, hard thing to do, to go through. And Praveen's relationship with the sister-in-law is kind of in a weird place as a result of the new baby because Praveen is, you know, childless and has very progressive views about stuff like birth control and women's health and like how children should be raised. And the sister-in-law is a little more you know, traditional and she wants Anaya to raise the baby and she's really super concerned with what the society women think of her and her contribution to this fancy hospital. So they're, again, Praveen is kind of going through it. On top of all this, she has this like taboo relationship with a man and it's taboo because society rules, you know, don't allow for her to be spending time with this man because she is separated from a husband who, spoiler, is not a good man. Again, read the previous books. But all of this is going on when the hospital's chief donor dies suddenly. And now Sunanda and this woman, a Jewish Indian obstetrician named Miriam, become the prime suspects. So what Praveen took on as Sunanda's original case, which was already fraught, you know, in and of itself, just suddenly got a whole lot more complicated. And I do mean a lot. Like there is another fire that takes place and involves some very powerful families and Gujarati families. And there's a lot going on here, you know, possibly the cover up of another crime. Again, things get hashtag complicated. I love this series so much. It's really feminist. It's, you know, historical. It's just fun. The mysteries are always really smart and address kind of some major like political issues of the time and just like social issues, lots of social critique in them while just being really entertaining. So yeah, I was really glad to see this one uh, was due on the day that I was on the podcast because I would have wanted to read it anyway. <laughs> and that is The Mistress of Batya House by Sujata Masi. Oh, right. I still need to read that one. I do really enjoy that series. So fun. And she's, you know, she's based on a real woman in history. Mm -hmm. So that's always cool, too. All right. So buckle in because one, uh, you're not going to believe that like all of the rest of my picks are nonfiction. Very unusual Ooh. for me. Secondly, I have a twofer for this next pick, because they kind of go together, and I'm also excited about both of them, and also, I could possibly talk about them for a couple of hours, because they involve some of my favorite things, so uh, we're gonna see how this goes. Alright, so I hope you all buckled in, maybe put on a helmet. Here we go. So, my next picks are The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans by Laura Trathaway. This one is her... She's a scientist. She explores oceans, and she talks about how five of the Earth's oceans cover 70% of the Earth's surface. You've probably heard this. Like, we're made up of so much water. The Earth is made up of so much water. But we have explored less than a quarter of the ocean floor, which is, is not a lot considering how much time we've been spending, you know, down. But, you know, as recent events have shown us, the ocean floor 
It's really deep. It's really dark. It's really hard to get to. It's very dangerous. So this is a hard thing to do, but like technology is changing all the time. And Trathaway kept thinking about this thing that she had heard where we have explored more of space than we have of the ocean floor, which is true. And so she started spending time with crews that work uh, studying the ocean floor. There was a program that was established a few years ago to map the whole ocean floor by 2030. But of course, there are issues because you have to have all the equipment. You have to have the money to keep this going. People don't want to give permission in some countries for this organization to go poking around on the ocean floor. Uh, they think they might be spying, you know, or up to no good. So they're finding resistance in some places that are like, you can't, you know, bring your equipment near us. It's fascinating. And she also discusses several people who work in this field, you know, uh, what the appeal is to them of the unknown and the dangerous and the dark and the deep. And also the trials and tribulations that they go through, like trying to get equipment to work and doing all these things, getting on trips, because sometimes you have to wait for the right conditions. Uh, I don't know if you ever read The Shadow Divers, but if you remember, they wanted to go look at uh, a wreckage out in the middle of the ocean. And I think it took them five years to actually be able to go back out and dive. Wow. Because the weather was never right when they had the time, like, to do it. Um, which is like, oh, that's a lot of patience. I mean, I'm patient. You know, I've had a lot of practice sitting still for many hours at a time because I read, but like five years to find out, like, if something, like, what something is and if you can do it. Oof. But anyway, I digress. So this one is great. It's the deepest map, the high stakes race to chart the world's oceans by Laura Trethaway. And the other book is Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark by Greg Skomal and Rhett Talbot. Now, as you know, sharks, one of my favorite subjects. I am terrified of sharks. I am terrified of the ocean. That is why I don't go in the ocean, but I love reading about them. Like, while I was reading both of these books, I kept getting that, like, roiling feeling of fear in my stomach because I was like, blah, shark attack, blah, ocean floor. But it's like a fun fear for me because unlike mm -hmm. so many plausible things that I am afraid of, I just don't have to go in the ocean. Like, problem solved. Don't have to do it, you know? So it's like a fun fear because I'm like, I'm not going in there. <laughs> you know? But so, like, I loved reading these. And this book, like I said, is by Greg Scobalt. You might know him. He's on Shark Week very often. He's been studying uh, sharks and uh, great white sharks specifically for, like, four decades now. This is another book in the Sharks Are Actually Our Friends canon, which is important because people still don't realize, like, how precarious their lives are and what we have done to them. A uh, Jaws the the is probably the piece of pop culture that is most responsible for single-handedly destructing and mm. or, or single-handedly wiping out an almost an entire species. They're not wiping out but like they killed like a large percentage of sharks. The movie, not the book. You know, after the movie came out, people were just killing sharks left and right, like all kinds of sharks. And Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, felt very responsible and devoted the rest of his life to shark conservation and and um, educating people about sharks. I didn't know that. Yeah, he did. Oh. And the great white shark, scientists actually just call them white sharks, which is like the first, I remember hearing this, re I think it's a recent thing, but he just refers to them as white sharks, like in the book. It is considered by most scientists to be the most perfect creature in nature. Like hmm. everything that they do is to keep them alive and healthy. You know, when you see sharks swimming in the ocean and you're like, why aren't they eating all the fish around them? It's because instead of expending that energy eating all these little fish, like, they just go where the big things are. Like, why spend all that time, you know, and, and energy eating little fish when you could eat a seal? 
They are unable to be kept alive in captivity. People have tried. They, they can't keep them in captivity. Great white sharks have survived every mass extinction event on the planet over hundreds of thousands of years. Like, think about that. That's how old they are. It's wild. Skomal talks about how he became interested in sharks, the work he does tagging and tracking them. He's, he's tagged over a hundred great white sharks now and how, why it's important that we learn about sharks because, uh, due to overfishing, and warming waters, great whites have moved further up the coast. Like, they are much more common in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts because of this. Like, you'll hear more about, like, shark sightings and shark attacks in the tri-state area, like, because of, because of that. It's, it's our fault. And, you know, there's also a little bit of, like, the anticipation of, like, you know, that the shark attack is going to happen in the book, like, you're reading. Because, uh, when he was out reading a shark watch one day in, in Massachusetts, he was on a boat at the same time there was a fatal attack in 2018. So he talks a little bit about that. So you get a little bit of that lurid shark attack, like, stuff, even though sharks don't really attack people. They call them shark incidences, like, scientists do, <laughs> because they're not doing it on purpose. And now, just because I really want to nerd out, I'm going to tell you a few facts about shark attacks. And so, like, if you're afraid of sharks, like, you might not want to listen. <laughs> I don't know. But let me let me tell you, like, how, how blown out of proportion it is, okay? A little over 100 people are bit by sharks every year. And less than a quarter of those bitings are unprovoked, meaning that hmm. most of those people who are bit by sharks, it's because they were taunting them in the water, uh, they pulled them onto a boat, like they captured <laughs> them in a net or something. You know, it's like they're unprovoked. And fewer than 10 of those unprovoked attacks are fatal. And those are just from the four or five kinds of sharks that will bite without provocation. Hmm. Um, and they're not even biting you because they want to attack you. They're biting you because they're like, I want to taste you and see if I should, if I should eat you. <laughs> and for every person who dies of a shark attack, we kill over a million sharks every year. Aww. So like, if we're killing, you know, if like fewer than, you know, it's like seven or eight people are dying every year, we're killing seven or eight million sharks. Not like, we're not counting. No one's keeping track. <laughs> like, but that's just, just how the numbers work, you know? So if you love sharks and you want to learn more, I would pick up this book. I would also highly recommend a book that I read recently that was so much fun called Weird But True Sharks, 300 Facts About Sharks by National Geographic Kids. I could probably talk for several more hours about sharks. Thank you for humoring me. <laughs> this one was Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark by Greg Skomal and Rhett Talbot. I wrote both of those down emphatically. I love stuff about the The ocean is one of the most deeply terrifying spaces. And I, I will go in the water, but yeah! like no. only so far. <laughs> <laughs> like where I can still see because yeah, like the things that lurk in the deep, deep, like we a don't know. And the stuff that we do is hella creepy and real weird. And I, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that big with Megalodon is out there. I don't know. I'm just, I'm scared of that kind of thing, <laughs> but I love it. I know. It's wild. And it, and you think about like how long they've been around yes. and all this stuff, you know, last year, yeah, last year, my eye doctor diagnosed me with anastigmatism and she told me like, you know, it'll be hardest for me to see at dusk and at dawn. And I was like, when sharks feed, <laughs> she was like, um, okay. <laughs> never change, Liberty. Please never change. <laughs> I was like, that's what I know about Dusk and Dawn. <laughs> oh, when sharks feed. I'm going to say that in mixed company the next chance I get. <laughs> All right. Like I said, thanks for humoring me because I knew I was going to get really carried away. But I just love sharks so much. I know you do. And they scare me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it about you deeply. <laughs> well, 
I'll give us a pivot. Uh, let's talk about tacos <laughs> and romance. Pivot. 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 It's, it's, I love the people that are going to get that and the ones that don't, don't. But um, <laughs> my second book is called Kiss Me, Mi Amor by Alana Quintana Albertson. It is the second book in the Love and Tacos series. I didn't even know that's what the series was called, but I love that. And this is the pick that came out last week. The first book in the series is one that I talked about on this show. It's called Ramon y Julieta, and it's obviously inspired by Romeo and Juliet. These are romance books. And in the first one, which I'm going to give you some context just to set up the second one, the son of the owner of this giant and very successful taco chain in Southern California falls for a woman who owns this like struggling seat-to-table taco shop. The two of them share this really steamy kiss at a Dia de los Muertos celebration in San Diego. And it's not until way later that Julieta realizes that the guy she kissed is the son of the super greedy landlord who is trying to gentrify her neighborhood and kick out all of its tenants, including her. This is like extra salt in the wound because that man knew and fell in love with Julieta's mom many, many, many moons ago and kind of sort of stole her fish taco recipe. And it's like the thing that made him rich and famous. (laughs) So there is some, you know, bad blood there. But it's a romance, so, you know, what sort of happens. And so in the second book, this is a twist on the Taming of the Shrew. And at the start of the book, we're still in San Diego, and we get to see Ramon and Julieta from the first book, who are now engaged. The holiday season is upon us, and the main, or one of the main characters now is Ramon's brother, Enrique. He is trying to expand the Taco King business, but also do a little bit of damage control in light of facts from the last book that came to light about his dad's uh, word I'm not supposed to say. So anyway, dad's bad dealings, we'll say. So now what he wants most is to score a meeting with Carolina Flores, who is one of very, very few Latina farm owners who's made kind of a splashy name for herself thanks to not only, you know, the stuff that her farm produces, but for her general business practices, including, you know, paying folks a fair wage and just caring for those people as, you know, humans. And so Enrique is really jazzed that he has indeed scored that meeting and is planning to go up there. It's in like the Santa Barbara kind of region. And the rest of the family's like, yeah, 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 we'll come too. We'll go stay at like dad's house and like have a big old Christmas, you know, shindig. And he's like, oh, I don't really, Christmas isn't my thing. Okay, fine. So they all agree to go. But the problem here is that he's sort of been set up. Carolina's sister Blanca pretends to be her in answering like correspondence for the farm and set up the meeting like unbeknownst to Carolina. So Enrique shows up to this farm in Santa Barbara thinking, yes, I got this meeting. This is going to go great. And Carolina, you know, takes one look at him and she's big mad. (laughs) She wants nothing to do with the Montes family. She's familiar with the Taco King chains and all the tea about the owner. And she's like, nope, no quiero. Like, ¿qué es esto? Like, she, she doesn't want to partner with him in any way. Like, she partners with farm-to-table restaurants with ethical practices that she feels in line with. And so this wealthy taco chain empire dude can, you know, go pound sand. Enrique is a smooth talker, though. And when her family lets slip that Carolina is in a bind because she cannot find someone to be <laughs> this is this part's kind of funny the the Joseph to her Mary in the town's Las Posadas, which is the best thing I can describe Las Posadas. I mean, it's a really big like party actually, but the beginning part of it is sort of a reenactment of Mary and Joseph trying to find room at the end and everybody rejecting them until like the very end. It's a reenactment of that, so it's like a little pilgrimage, and so like every it's sort of a pageant. Like people play roles, and there's a Joseph and a Mary, and there's a call and response song. <laughs> it's a very big thing in Mexico. And so she is super like, ah, she can't find a Joseph to play. You know, she's going to be Mary. 
And this is where Enrique, like, sees his way in. Like, he agrees to fill in for her in the hopes that he can persuade her to work with him and, you know, lay on a little bit of charm. And Carolina's super traditional dad and the rest of her sisters, of course, mistake Enrique for Carolina's boyfriend. And they just sort of agree to do some fake dating to appease the family and, you know, hey, what's a little holiday fun? But it's a romance. So, you know, these fake feelings lead to real feelings. They're going to figure out, you know, how they feel about each other. What I love about, again, I know I'm a broken record, but again, representation, like Carolina comes from a really super traditional family where A, everybody just wants to set her up because they, in spite of all this success that she's, you know, garnered for herself and being this, you know, unique position of being a Latina farm owner, etc. Everyone's like, but are you married? But are you married? But are you married? And while, of course, not all families, you know, of Mexican or, or Latina extraction feel this way, there are a lot of very traditional ones that do. And so... She is definitely like the progressive person in the family who wants to move everyone forward, but her dad is still that dude that in spite of, you know, again, her being this really independent and accomplished woman still has really old school views about what she can and cannot do for herself as far as making decisions and whether or not she's married. And so you see her trying to like work with that, you know, deep love for like who she is and where she comes from, but wanting to also, you know, make a change and not you know, this really beautiful man comes walking in her door who she feels like she shouldn't be into because of who, you know, he, she thinks he represents. So it's a lot of fun in that way. And seeing that holiday setting in Las Posadas, which is just a super, like, beautiful tradition that I have only gotten to participate in a few times because it's definitely more popular in, like, actual Mexico than I've I've seen it done. But it is starting to come back a little bit in the States, too. So yeah, it was just super fun. Love me a romance. It's a little bit corny at sometimes, and I love that about it too. Just it's a really fun series. And who doesn't love tacos? So <laughs> that is Kiss Me Mi Amor by Alana Quintana Albertson. All right. And now we are going to hear from another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased 
increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. In true us fashion, uh, we have spent a ton of time talking about yep. <laughs> our first four books. So we're going to have to like buzz a little bit through these last four, but... We're going to get them on your radar. My first one is When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era by Donovan X. Ramsey. I have read the first, I'd say, fifth of this. It's excellent. It's 500 pages long, so I've read 100 pages of it. It is an important look at the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which began with basically Reagan's propaganda for the war on drugs. Ramsey examines the history of this epidemic fueled by racism and the prison system and myth and gossip, as well as the drugs beginnings and legacy. Uh, he also includes biographies of four people with firsthand knowledge of crack and the crack epidemic and crack addiction from addicts to people in government to activists. And he includes his own knowledge. Uh, he grew up in a poor neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio, and he talks about how the crack epidemic affected everyone there. So this is When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era by Donovan X. Ramsey. This is like, it's it's going to be like on all the best of the nonfiction lists at the end of the year, for sure. And I know this having only read a fifth of it. I need to read that one. Um, my next one is one that I'm really excited about that I could not get a hold of the galley for, but I'm going to get a hold of the finished copy. And that is The Center by Aisha Manazir Siddiqui. It is a debut about a London-based Pakistani translator whose whole dream is to translate like great works of literature, but she hasn't been able to do so. She mostly gets to sit around like subtitling Bollywood movies, and she lives off her her parents' inheritance. And annoyingly, her very mediocre white boyfriend has parlayed like an aptitude for languages into this fantastic career. So she's you know a little bit jelly. And then one day, this guy learns to speak Urdu, like, practically overnight. And Anissa is like, that's that's not possible. What, you know, so she forces him to reveal the secret. And that secret is that he has enrolled at this place called The Center, which is this elite, like, invite-only program that promises, like, guarantees complete fluency in any language in 10 days. And so Anissa is like, yep, this is the ticket to, like, the life I've always wanted. Surely there is no catch here. And, you know... She is immediately stripped of her belongings and all contact with the outside world when she enrolls and she's got to go through all these like strange and rigorous processes. And so, you know, clearly we learned that there is a much higher price to pay here. And I'm really, really excited about this one. So that's The Center by Aisha Manazir Siddiqui. It's also the second book in Gillian Flynn's imprint after Scorched Grace. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yes. That was her second pick. My other pick for today is Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe by Omawa Shields. I learned the other day on Masterminds, mind you, so this is a game show, so this might not be true, that 99.99999% of our universe is taken up by the sun. Like, that's how big the sun is in our in our universe. And then nine-tenths of that point, whatever that is left, is taken up by Saturn and Jupiter. So everything else in our universe fits in, like, one-tenth of that point. Zero 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 one percent, which is wild. Space is wild. It didn't interest me when I was a kid, but now 
I, I mean, I did watch Space Camp a million times because <laughs> who didn't if you grew up in the 80s? But now I'm very, very interested in space. I read The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy last year by Moya McTeer, which was fantastic and narrated as though the, the galaxy was telling its story. Uh, and also I loved The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space, Time, and Dreams Deferred by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, which is a great memoir about black women working in STEM. And I actually, uh, speaking of book coincidences, I read Interesting Facts About Space by Emily Austin, which comes out in January. And then the next day on Masterminds, they had a question that I could answer because I had read that novel. So yay for reading. Anyway, Shields, the author of this book, is an astronomer, an astrobiologist, the Claire Booth Luce Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of California, Irvine, and a classically trained actor. I loved reading that about Claire Booth Luce because she was like Dorothy Parker's nemesis, so I read a lot about her when I was a kid. Anyway, this is her memoir about her young interest in science and working in a historically white male field. Uh, she became very discouraged after she went to school for this and eventually left science and space to uh, act. She became an actor for several years, but then got drawn back, came back to science and started working on NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, which I have no idea what that is, but it sounds important. And I just love other people's stories of how they found their path to what they love to be fascinating. Uh, like uh, the one I read recently, The Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World by Christian Cooper. That's another great memoir if you want to learn about how people develop their love of things that they become obsessed with as adults, like sharks. Um, this one is Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe by Omawa Shields. That was a rapid fire of really great books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I may not have had any caffeine, but <laughs> I can still talk fast and a lot. <laughs> I don't need caffeine for that, as we all know, <laughs> either. <laughs> anyway, um, my last pick is called The Carnival of Curiosities by Amy Gibbs. It's another debut, and it is blurred by Colson Whitehead. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to look at that. And it's set in Victorian London, where this, at the time, you know, traveling sideshows were like all the rage among London's elite. And so there's in this world, no more coveted ticket than this carnival of curiosities. Each performance is a very like limited engagement. And anyone who, you know, dares to traverse the streets of Southwark to witness the spectacle is it like in for a treat. Um, but for some people, the real draw here is what happens behind the curtain, because there's rumors that the show's proprietor is not just your average, you know, like illusionist magician, but for the right price, he can allegedly make any wish come true. And so this one of the most notorious men in London approaches him with this proposition regarding his a charge, his young charge. She's this young, beautiful girl named Charlotte. The you know proprietor whose name is Ash wants to refuse, but then that man uh, reveals that he holds a secret that threatens the security of the troop's most vulnerable members. And so, for those blackmail reasons, Ash really has no choice but to sign this insidious, very shady contract. And things get even more complicated when the sort of star of the show named Lucien the Lucifer has this attraction to that young charge. And she, you know, is also attracted to him because that attraction spurs a course of events that lead straight to danger. So horror, secrets, blackmail, high stakes, gothic, Victorian, London, jealousy, murder, lots of things that will get me to pick up a book. <laughs> so that is The Carnival of Curiosities by Amy Gibbs. All right. I'm very excited about that one as well. Those are books we have read and books we have not read and books we have read some of that we are excited about. And now it is time for the paperback lightning round. Lightning round because we're running out of time. Uh, starting <laughs> with Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir by Erica L. Sanchez. 
Sanchez is the author of I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, a novel, and this is a memoir and essay starting with her life growing up in Chicago in the 1990s as the daughter of Mexican immigrants. The Man Who Could Move Clouds, a memoir by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. This was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a National Book Award finalist. Contreras is the author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree. This is her story about growing up in the 80s and 90s in Colombia. Her mother was a fortune teller. Supposedly her family has magic magic abilities, magical abilities, I should say. Um, and these are her stories, including when she and her mother traveled to move her grandfather's remains. Next up is The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories by Jamil Jang Kuchai. This was a National Book Award finalist as well. It's a collection of short stories. Uh, it was winner of the 2023 Aspen Words Literary Prize and the 2023 O. Henry Prize. And it's amazing. Kaleidoscope by Cecily Wong, a novel about two sisters who are heirs to a shopping empire and the tragedy that changes their lives and everything they thought they knew about their family. The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. She is the award-winning author of many things, including Hamnet, which won the Booker Prize. Uh, this is historical fiction about the young Duchess Lucrezia de Medici. Other Names for Love by Tamor Sumuru. This is a coming-of-age novel about two boys who fall in love over a summer in Pakistan. The Last Party by Claire McIntosh. This is a thriller where there is a New Year's Eve party, the host dies, everyone at the party is a suspect, the host was reviled, everyone at the party has a reason to have killed him. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was fun. And I think it's going to be a series. I think there's another one coming with the police officer in this one. I could be wrong. And Chester Keene Cracks the Code by Kekla Magoon. I love Kekla Magoon's books. Um, this one is about a young boy who thinks that he started receiving secret messages from his dad. His dad has not been a part of his life, and the young boy has decided that it must be because he's a spy, because why else wouldn't he want to be a part of his life? He starts getting these messages, he enlists a classmate, and they think that they have used the messages to uncover a heist that is going to happen, and only they can stop it. That is a really fun middle-grade mystery. So, those are all kinds of books out today. Vanessa, what are you going to read next? Well, you talking about some of your uh, last picks reminded me that I had a Libby hold that was about to expire, so I'm going to go back and read The Disordered <laughs> Cosmos by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, um, who, a uh, little inside fact, is also a good friend of Sharifa, our executive editor of content. So yeah, I can't wait to read yes. that one. And also I got A Galley of the Sun and the Void by Gabriela Romero La Cruz. It is about two women who embark on this quest that draws them into the world of dark gods and ancient magic. It's a sweeping, like, big old epic fantasy debut that's inspired by history, history, <laughs> history and folklore from colonial South America. It's a chonker and the cover is beautiful and I am excited to read a book that's more than 300 pages because i haven't done that in a little bit but yeah it looks really really great awesome i'm going to finish when crack was king and i also really want to read again and again by jonathan evison which i got a copy of and then i didn't like read the description but i, I just did the other day and it's about a man in a nursing home who gets a new attendant and he tells the attendant that he has lived many many lives and starts explaining to him about all the past lives that he has had so that sounds really fun i love him that comes out in november so that is it for us today i feel like some days i say more words than others even though i probably say the same amount but <laughs> the result is the same <laughs> i love books and i want you to find something that you love and make that makes you happy so that's why i do this all right so 
Thank you to our sponsors. You can also search for First Edition in your podcast player of choice and download that. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooksatbookriot.com if you want to talk about sharks. I'm just saying. Vanessa, where can people find you online? I am slowly coming back to the gram, to Instagram, while every other social media platform implodes. Um, and that's at Buenos Dias SD. All right. And I'm also hanging out on Instagram still at Friends and Comes Alive. If you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, even the ocean floor. Uh, you can leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And we appreciate it so, so much. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find the link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search bookriot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.